0: Dad, I
1: love you all the way to God and back. Observations from a 5-year-old. And the author is Shannon Shy, and Shannon joins us now on Author Talk. Hello Shannon. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Well, this is going to be fun and it's going to be instructional and inspirational, I'm sure, because 5-year-olds always have something to say, and your daughter has a specific for some reason, right? She's got this little uh, talent or insight that maybe most don't have at her age. She is a particularly uh, special and gifted (laughs) little girl. And outspoken, it looks like. (laughs) And outspoken and articulate. (laughs) Yeah. Well, here's what you say about your book. This book is a compilation of humorous, insightful, and touching comments made by my daughter, Sammy, when she was five years old. The book also contains... Five foundational relationship-building pledges for those privileged to have the title Dad. The pledges are designed to prompt the dads of the world to think about their relationship with their children and to take affirmative steps to build or improve that relationship. Well, that's a great goal and a great thing to do. But let's get back to Sammy and when did you start taking notice and i guess one thing led to another and here we have this book
2: I have three children. Uh, I have a a 19-year-old son who's in college, a 15-year-old son who's in high school, and then Sammy, who is now six. When she was five, she just started saying things which were particularly bright, um, particularly uh, attention-getting. And after the first uh, Sammyism, if you will, uh, she said it to me. I started writing them down. And they just kept coming, Um, and they just seemed spontaneous and natural. They weren't contrived, and uh, so I started posting these little Sammyisms on Facebook. And several of my Facebook friends started commenting. You know, you really ought to compile these things into a book. And part of that comment was related to the fact that I had already authored a book, and so they were just trying to encourage me to to. Put something down in writing again, I, I suppose. But um, as the samizdat kept coming and I kept writing them down, I started to seriously consider that idea of compiling them, and and then that also led to you know weaving in these relationship-building pledges uh, that that I think are important uh, for any dad or parent. Really, I've I've been told that it applies equally across the board to building relationships with uh, your children.
1: Well, you were facing a particularly, uh, I guess, tough time in your marriage. Um, Sammy kind of uh, woke both of you up.
2: That that's right. Uh, you know, I guess, like some married couples, I, I don't want to say all or most, but you know, we were going through uh, back in the in the two thousand three two thousand four time frame. Uh, my wife and I, Debbie's my wife, going through, you know, a, kind of a. Uh, difficult marital uh, stage and uh, we we weren't trying to have a uh, a child but uh, Debbie ended up becoming pregnant um and then you know Sammy was born and she became this common focus for Debbie and I and that common focus uh in addition to sort of a renewed common focus with our our two sons uh basically I, and this is not a, uh, an overstatement or a dramatic statement, but it, it, it really saved our marriage. And our marriage became much, much stronger and continues to get stronger um, as we speak today. And so for us, for me, looking at Sammy, it was um, a gift from God. She was a gift from God. And uh, she really... Uh, she really is a special little girl. She's she's cute. She got striking blue eyes, and and she has a personality uh, to match. And she's constantly sort of in everybody's life. Everyone adores her. her, her all our our neighbors, um, the the boys' teammates, parents, everybody just uh, holds Sammy in high regard, and she engages with them um,
1: in in every aspect. Spoken like a very proud dad. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. Very proud father. (laughs) Well, she sounds like a delight, and yes, uh, children say the strangest things at times, and also say the most uh, impactful things to us. Give us a. Let's just right here take a little pause before we, uh, you know, talk more about some of uh, other things of your life give us some of these antisemitisms give us a yeah. couple of examples in the setting of how it when it happened how it happened
2: well, the first one, which really led to, to me writing down everything else, uh, the first one, uh, Sammy and I were playing school. We like we played lots of games, uh, school, restaurant, you know, you name it. I was sitting on the floor. Sammy was the teacher. She was standing up by her little chalkboard, and she had placed uh, several dolls next to me, and, and including one of her dolls named Natalie. And Sammy's trying to teach me the ABCs or her class, and I was being disruptive. I kept raising my hand, saying, "I've got." to go to the bathroom, you know, wins recess? And she was getting frustrated. And so finally she stopped, put her hand on her, her hip, and she said, as I was saying, who knows their ABCs? And so I raised my hand sort of like horse you know, and uh, welcome back, Cotter. I kept going, oh, I know it. I know it. I know it. And so Sammy looks at me. She looks at her doll, Natalie, looks back at me and says, I'm sorry, Shannon, but Natalie raised her hand first. <laughs> And, she and put then, you yeah. in your place. <laughs> she did. She did. Um, And then there was another time. Um, actually, my personal favorite uh, is uh, we were my family. We were all down in Washington D.C. We lived near D.C. And uh, Sammy and I. Sammy had to go to the restroom, and my wife and my two sons were off in uh, one of the other museums, and so. I had to take Sammy into the men's restroom, into a stall, and so she went to the restroom, and and I was helping her button her pants. And as we were doing that, she heard somebody come into the into the men's restroom, and alarmed her. And so, in the uh, deepest, gruffest voice uh, <laughs> she could muster, she said, oh, Dad, I'm just trying to button my pants. And then she whispers into my ear. and She says, "I'm trying to sound like a boy so they don't think there are any girls in here."
1: <laughs> oh, that is cute, and that is
2: wonderful. Yeah. So, but she um, she continues, you know. Well, she continues to this day to uh, to make us laugh. Um, um, and, and, and actually, there was a lot of touching little comments in there that that really reminded me um, of of the priorities that one should have in life, you know, relative to children. And and that, that really just boils down to just spending time, you know, holding them, telling them you love them, and working on those, you know, those relationship skills, which, again, led to why I wove in the, the five relationship-building pledges in the book.
1: Well, we have all these observations from a five-year-old about important things, but these relationship-building pledges. Let's uh, tell us a, l- a little bit about uh, uh, the importance of them. Obviously, they come from personal experiences. Correct. As I said, I, I have I have three children, and
2: I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an expert. I'm, you know, uh, and I'm not really in a position to tell anybody else in the whole world about how they should act or be, or how to be a good dad. But, I can say that through my experience as a as a as a father of of three kids who are spread over you know um, in, in different parts of their their uh, maturation process, if you will, uh, as a as a coach of youth sports teams, as a, a national administrator of a, a youth sports program, uh, having worked with you know uh, in the in the whole Boy Scout arena. I, I do believe that there are certain things that one can do uh, to build a, a solid relationship with uh, your child, and I think it's extremely important to do that. We all get caught up in our own world, and I'm a, I'm a really, really busy person. Um, uh, maybe unfortunately, I'm really, really busy. Uh, you know, the time you spend with your kids, um, you have to ensure that that you're making the most out of that time even if it's just simply sitting there holding your child and not saying a word uh, the as i've experienced the the more you invest in that relationship from a from a young age uh the more your children, as they grow older, will trust you, will confide in you, will seek your you know your help through their difficult times um, and then we all have challenges I understand that but but for me, all I wanted to do was put it out there um as as something that other dads and and maybe you know mothers as well can think about and 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 think about in the perspective of their own lives and their own relationship with their kids. And so obviously these are, you know, there are many other ways to build relationships. These are the five that I thought, you know, were most important. And, and, and again, these are relationship building pledges that, that dads can make, you know, to themselves relative to their relationship with their kids. There are many other things that, Parents need to do with their children, like teaching them you know in- in- integrity uh, uh, hard work respect etc but that 's not what these are designed to do these are These are purely relationship building um, uh, uh, concepts that that one can apply uh, in your own life uh, and and, you know in your own way and and, you know there are many ways to accomplish the concepts that I discuss in this book
1: well as you said you're very busy you're a civilian attorney with the Department of Navy a retired lieutenant colonel from the US Marine Corps and we uh, really uh, salute you for all your service Shannon, uh, and you do a lot in sports, uh, working with boys and and, uh, probably girls as well. Uh, um, You've had some, uh, just to kind of switch gears a little bit here for everyone, you've had some uh, great challenges that most people would say, well, that could never happen to Shannon. He's got it all together. But you had this thing called ACD. In fact, you wrote a book, and it's really helped a lot of people. Right, I'm sorry, that's OCD. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, OCD, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder.
2: Right. Uh, back in the 90s, when I was a major on active duty with the Marines, um, I was diagnosed with a, a, a severe case of obsessive compulsive disorder. And really, it started getting bad uh, right about the time my first son was born. And for like the next five years, I tried to hide it. But it basically spiraled me uh, to a grinding uh, halt. And I didn't want to leave my house. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Uh, I didn't want to seek help for it because I didn't know what the Marines Corps would do with me if they found out there was something you know mentally wrong with me. But finally, I, I, I got to a point where I knew that I needed to seek help, so I, I saw a psychiatrist. And then uh, through that process, I went on medication, and I started behavioral therapy with a psychologist. Uh, within a relatively quick period of time, maybe a year and a half or so, I developed my own behavioral strategy uh, where I finally got on top of the OCD and then got to a point where it, it didn't affect me it, it, anymore. And so I was able to get off medication. I stopped seeing doctors. Uh, after that, I put you know that OCD on the shelf. I, I didn't want to have any part of it. I didn't want anyone to associate OCD with me. Uh, and then finally, right around 2006 or so, uh, uh, a woman confided in me that she had OCD and she was having difficulty dealing with it, and I told her, well, there's something that you don't know about me, and I told her my story, and she wrote me back a few months later and said, you've changed my life. You really do need to tell your story. So that led to me writing my first book, a um, uh, uh, called it 'll be okay. How I kept OCD from uh, ruining my life uh, from that process, uh, lots of other doors uh, opened. Um, the book has been very well received. Uh, one woman wrote that it was like God answered a prayer for her, uh, and even most recently, I, I was told uh, by a woman that my book saved another woman 's life um, so i'm i'm now heavily involved with the international o c d foundation uh they've i'm on their board of directors and on their speakers bureau uh, and i f- for me o c d is such a debilitating disorder, and my goal in writing the book was that you know if it helps one person then then I would consider it a success and i'm just grateful gratified um, and rewarded really that the book has turned out to help other people.
1: Well, congratulations on that as well. And so everyone, uh, this man goes from one extreme to the other here and has some uh, g- great insight and uh, great stories to tell from a five-year-old to this incredible, miraculous uh, recovery. I mean, it's, uh, it's fantastic to see when people overcome the probably to some uh, un- unsurmountable odds. So... Let's talk about how to get your book, the one called Dad, I Love You All the Way to God and Back, Observations from a Five-Year-Old. Tell us how to get your book about your little daughter, Sammy.
2: Steve, the, uh, the book is available um, at authorhouse.com and it's also available on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com and, uh, and I, I just i put that out there for everybody you can compare uh, prices and shipping and all of that uh, but it's available at those three uh, three places
1: and his book about overcoming ocd it's titled it'll be okay how i kept obsessive compulsive disorder from ruining my life and the author is shannon shy shannon thanks for being with us on author talk
2: Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, have a have a wonderful holiday season.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazillo. Friday afternoons at five Eastern, four Central, on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. Show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman, she is powerful, she is wonderful, and she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo, Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriendage is on Net Thursdays at 10 AM Eastern, 11 AM Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. brought to you by author house helping authors publish promote and sell their books around the world the title
1: of the book how winning the lottery changed my life windfall a blessing or a curse and the author is sandra hayes and sandra joins us now on author talk hello sandra hi Good to have you with us now. You became a millionaire from the lottery and we'll get to we'll let you tell uh where you were before that and what happened to you after winning the lottery with a bunch of folks at your office and you can give us those details. But you say this about your book. Dreams can come true, it can happen to you, a windfall of money. If this happened to you, what would you do? I'm about to tell you a true story that really happened to a young lady in the adventures of her life. I'm certain there were adventures, (laughs) both good and bad, right? Oh,
4: yes, correct.
1: Well, let's back up. Uh, Let's back up to what year was it? 2006. 2006, and before this big day, tell us what you were doing and how your life was going.
4: Well, actually, I was a, um, I'll call myself a case manager or a social worker working for um, the state of Missouri Child Support Enforcement. And part of my job was the collection of child support.
1: And you, uh, you're, you had uh, advanced your education to help you keep advancing in your career. And, of course, you uh, incurred uh, quite a lot of debt.
4: Yes, I actually, I um, had a a bachelor's in psychology and I also have two um, degrees in, um, two masters, I'm sorry, two masters, uh, one in human resource management and the second one in educational technology. And so, therefore, you know, it was my goal to basically leave the state of Missouri um, employment and, and, and go and advance myself, you know, based on my education in other areas.
1: So at this time in your life, you write about your situation that you were going to have to take another job, and here you are a single mom, you're going to have to take another job to pay your school loans.
4: Correct. And the problem was that um, I believe in year 2005, I was diagnosed with lupus, um, that scored lupus, which, you know, once I received this diagnosis, it's like, you know, wow, you know, I became ill, you know, more ill. And I realized I was an American with a disability and I needed special treatment, et cetera. And I knew that I was not going to be able to work a second job you know maintaining that I stayed with the state of Missouri I would have needed a second job in order to pay back my student loan and um, at that particular time to me it was impossible and I wrote about it in my book you know I just briefly the book is a synopsis of my life so basically in the book I stated you know I made lemonade from lemons meaning you know i'm I'm a strong-willed person and i was going to do what it took so if it if it took a second job i would have done that period pay back my debt
1: (laughs) and then that fateful morning when you were running late to work and you were getting all kinds of phone calls from your supervisor
4: Well, in actuality, uh, what happened is the fact that I heard through the grapevine that, you know, when the lottery was up, people in my office would play. And I was wondering why have not, you know, I've been asked to play the lottery. And I'm like, you know, I'm the type of person, like I stated in my book, I'm a type of in-your-face tell it like it is, you know, shoot straight from the hip type person. And so when I found out that they are playing the lottery and nobody has asked me, of course I went to the person that normally goes around asking everybody, and I just, you know, merely asked him, how come you've never asked me to play. And so he's like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, it's nothing personal. You sit in the back, and honestly, I forget that you're back there. And I'm like, okay, well, the next time you guys play the lottery, would you please ask me? And he's like, oh, sure, there's no problem. And he did. Um, He came, I believe it was on a Tuesday, and he asked me to play. And... um, I, of course, I handed him a dollar, and he's like, no, today we're playing $5 because we want to buy a lot of tickets. So I paid it. Okay, not, I didn't think anything else of it. That particular morning, um, I believe it was um, a Thursday morning, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. And I woke up. I was running late. I didn't watch the news, which is my usual routine. And um, I received a phone call, and it was my supervisor. And I'm like, you know, gee, why is she calling me at home? And so she's like, you know, are you coming in? And I'm like, duh, yeah. (laughs) I'm coming in. And so she's like, okay. And um, I'm like, you know, my scheduled time was 830 to go to work. And so it's like, you know, I believe the time was like eight ten, and I'm like, you know, I'm getting ready to leave, which I would have to have left by 8.15 to get to work at 8.30 because, believe it or not, the job was close to my home. And so, you know, as I was continuing to get dressed, she called again, and she's like, you know, and I can understand her enthusiasm, you know. She's like, you know, uh, are are you getting ready to leave? You know, and I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> and so she's like, um, you know, it's like she couldn't wait to tell, break the news to me. She's like, have you looked at the news, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no you know because I'm I really I had an attitude because why are you calling my house <laughs> you know, that was my attitude you know You're your state employee you're not supposed to call her my house and so she's like sit down sit down I have something to tell you are you sitting and I told her, yes but I wasn't you know because I have this attitude you why are you calling my house <laughs> and so she told me that we won the lottery and I'm like yeah right you know I didn't believe it I mean it's like when you hear news like at least for me it's like you know I went into I don't know I guess um the, the land of odds or something <laughs> I don't know but I did not believe it and it's like you know I should have believed it because other people were calling my house to give me the good news. And it's like, no, actually I thought maybe something had happened with my lupus and I went into a coma and I'm dreaming this, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by the time I did make it to work, you know, um, as I stated in my book, I'm I'm looking around and the parking lot is empty and that's unusual for, you know, um, Department of Social Services, it's unusual. People are normally outside smoking or so no one was, and so when I walked into the building, you know no one was in the hallway and as I enter, you know approached my door to which my office was, or rather department, people ran out and they grabbed me, and I'm like, well, what the heck and i you know I'm like you know are are these the doctors and the nurses trying to wake me up? you know did something happen to me you know and so Like I said, from that point, um, when I um, went into my office manager's office and I saw the look on his face, I knew that, you know, this was not a dream, that this indeed something had had happened for me, because he was also one who played the lottery as well, you know, and so...
1: There were 13 of you, 13, the lucky 13, as you were called, $224 million dollars and of course, uh, after taxes and taking the lump sum, uh, you were still a pretty big m- m- uh, multi-millionaire.
4: Well, I, I was a millionaire. Let's just put it that way. Um, to me, multi-millionaire is anything over 10 million. You understand? Two digits. When you down to one, you know, that's a blessing. So, yes, I, I was blessed.
1: Now, your title of your book says, A Blessing or a Curse? So, Tell us why you wrote it this way.
4: Uh, Well, number one, um, I watched this show that comes on uh, TLC, and the name of this is how, um, what is the name of that show? Uh, It's about a bunch of lottery winners.
1: Yeah, Million Dollar uh, Christmas was it called back then?
4: Well, no, Million Dollar Christmas, that was the uh, reality show. i I, I participated oh okay but i believe um name of this show is um i went in the lottery um changed my life something similar to my title but not quite my title Mm -hmm. and it comes on tlc like once a month and it's basically going over different people within the united states and i think one out of state, um, in England or somewhere, who have won the lottery. And um, like I said, as you sit back and you watch these particular stories, you find out that, you know, um, winning the lottery is mostly a blessing to people because you're going to spend your money right. You're going to upgrade your family, you know, um, living arrangements. You're going to buy nice homes. You're going to buy nice cars, and you're going to save your money so that, when you pass away, you may be able to pass down some of that money to your family. But on the other hand, you know, winning the lottery, the, that, the first part that I talked about is the blessing part. And now I'm going to talk about the curse part, whereas, you know, you may have, you know, a, a, a drug problem. You know what I'm saying, uh, or develop a drug problem because you do not hang out with the right people, and, and their influence in your life is, is negative. You may hang out with people whose, you know, they are not truly your friends. Um, their ultimate goal in your life is to rip you off of what you have. So, um, and like I said, you may develop a gambling habit and gamble away your money. So, it's negativity. You know, um, I've I've heard stories of of people being murdered, you know, because they have money. And, um, you know, and then you always have people you know, because you've won money, they automatically assume that you are their their automatic, you know, ATM machine. And they can come and borrow money from you and not repay you or or cheat you and, you know, um, get loans from you, you know, what you call interest-free loans, and you know, where there's no penalty for late payment. And, you know, you're taking a loss. You know when you withdraw this money from your bank account, you're losing on interest and if you do not have you know um the heart to tell people no, just say no you can get you know uh suckered and 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 you know from out of your money and so those are things that you know I, I've looked at some of some of it not not you know the drug part or anything is what I've actually experienced. You know, in my life, you know, uh, people, you know, who feel like, you know, okay, well, I'm related to you or whatever, so I feel that I'm entitled to, you know, some of what you have, and if you don't split it up with them then, you know, your name becomes Mud. You know what I'm saying? And these are some of the experiences that I've, I've I've gone through in my life. You were
1: convinced to be a part of a show back in December 2007 that aired, Million Dollar Christmas. You weren't happy with it.
4: Oh, no. No. I mean, you know, with, along, when you, you know, have a windfall of money, you'll be surprised of the people that will appear in your life, you know, who wants to, you know, um in a sense make a big deal out of out of your fortune and, and you know, in the long run, you know, maybe they can get something from it too. You know what I'm saying? And so when the opportunity was presented before me um to do a, you know, a reality show, uh, a special of course, you know I, I jumped on for the opportunity because that's my personality type. I'm I'm an adventurous person, and I like you know new ideas. And so um, you know the way um, it was pitched to us. You know um, that this is going to be a story, a heartwarming, heartfelt story regarding you know our first Christmas as millionaires. Of course, you know I, I, I like that idea, and I was like, hey, I'm 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 in it, you know. And so out of the 13 people, only four of us agreed to be part of of the reality show, and so. Uh, <laughs> And this is the main point I'm trying to get across to, the, um, you know, to my readers is the fact that, you know, reality shows, they are reality, but it's not what you think it is. Um, and my story came across as being, you know, controversial. And when it became controversial, I had to be placed, you know, in a position of defending myself and my family. So that's what I did.
0: So
1: your sisters were portrayed as jealous people in this show.
4: Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, they—you uh, know—I think they deserve an Academy Award <laughs> because um, they had a lot of people mad at me because they actually believed the show that I was this selfish person who, in a in a sense, abandoned, you know, uh, turned my back on my family and I did not share any of my wealth with them, you know, and you know i i was mad at them uh you have to you know rem- remember the um reality show was filmed in 2006 but it did not come on tv until you know 2007 so you know for a whole year we were like you know in in a sense you know um closer than normal okay and uh And so in 2007, when the reality show aired, it's like, what, you said this about me, you said that, and you know that this is not true? And I was mad at them, you know, we didn't speak for a year, you know, I think 2008 when we finally came back together. And they kind of like, you know, told me their side of the story. They're like, you know, we were uh, interviewed, you know, apart from one another, and they asked us specific questions, you know, hypothetical what-if questions. Because one of my sisters was saying that, you know, she in a sense expected me to give her like $50,000 or something to that effect. And she's like, you know, um, the, the man who interviewed me, he asked me hypothetically what kind of money... Do you feel your sister should give you from her windfall? And that she said. That's when she said like fifty thousand dollars. And she's like, she in no way knew that he was going. They were gonna, you know, edit it into the show, whereas it made it seem like you know I've, I'm this selfish person because I did not give her fifty thousand dollars. She's like, that is not what we wanted. And. um so, and my other sister, she told me the same thing. You know, she's like, you know, they asked us questions and they edited our responses. Right. right. And I'm like, okay, well, I could understand.
1: Well, you have advice to people who may get a big windfall. You say you have to be smart with your newfound wealth and not live above your need and not live above your means. Watch out for people who are always looking for something for nothing, whether it is money or to be in your mix. Learn what their true motives are and don't let money go to your head. Well, we've run out of time, Sandra. Want to uh, tell everyone how to get your book, How Winning the Lottery Changed My Life Windfall, a Blessing or a Curse? Uh, Sandra Hayes is the author. Tell us how to get your book, Sandra.
4: Well, right now, I'm selling the book <laughs> um, personally, but uh, it's available on ebook. Um, It's going to be uh, made available through um, my Facebook page, which I'm currently at this particular point or establishing it. Um, it should be sold within um, bookstores, you know, in your local area. Um, and then um, you can uh, contact uh, ArthurHouse.com. Um, uh, for
1: my book. Well, thank you for being with us, Sandra, on Author Talk. Thank
4: you.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or one hundred, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on Toginet.com Thursday mornings at eight AM Central Time with Martin Krueger. Learning Rx programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning Rx comes in. Call today 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning Rx can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning R X, the radio show, with Martin Krueger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world.
1: The title of the book, Remembering Becca Love is Just a Memory. And the author is Alexander Rosenfeld. And Alex joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Alex. Hi. Well, good to have you with us. We're going to uh, find out how Alex ticks, aren't we, with this? <laughs> what makes Alex do the things he does when it comes to love? We're gonna really you're you're gonna just expose yourself, Alex.
3: Yeah, it's all right. I mean, <laughs> it's Alex all right the book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's all there in the book. And Alex is uh, 19 years young. Yeah, I actually turn 20 tomorrow. Oh well, happy birthday! Happy birthday! Great, fantastic. Thanks. I think I can remember when I was 20. Uh, I don't know if I can (laughs) Anyway, it's great to be young, and it's great to be in love at any age, and it's great to talk about it. So that's what we're going to do. Let me read a couple things you've written about your book, Alex. You say this, Remembering Becca is a journey to find love that ultimately sees the narrator engaged in a journey of self-discovery. With the help of his conscience, Alex battles within himself as well as within his real life to find love and discover who he truly is. And I guess when we're looking for love, we really are seeking to find out more about ourselves, aren't we?
3: Yeah, I mean, that was where the book all started, because the the real-life experience that I came out of was an experience in which I had the battle within myself more so than with other people or with the real world because it really, to me, was all mindset and was just about figuring things out. And so I wanted to bring that perspective to the book.
1: So the book is a lot about uh, your own self-discovery, but it's fictional.
3: Um, Yes. I mean, the book is derived out of something that actually happened, but for the most part, it is a fictional work. And that was something that I decided to do in order to obviously protect real people. And I guess real emotions that actually happened. So
4: now the
1: book is in a diary format told from the male perspective with narrative aid from a, as you put it, quirky and relentless (laughs) conscience. (laughs) Yeah. Why did you decide to do it this way?
3: Um, well, It just seemed like the natural thing to do because you have all these thoughts, but then you have the thoughts beneath the thoughts, and everyone talks about a conscience, but how much does it really um, kind of regulate what you do and ultimately who you are? And in the book, the conscience is always speaking to the narrator, but the narrator never speaks back, and that was a choice I made because I wanted to kind of show that this conscience is who the character really is so you don't really choose who you are but who you are kind of guides you to who you are going to be whether you know it or not and so for me the conscience had to be quirky had to be kind of weird because he has to realize everything and he has to kind of be able to take on any kind of perspective because ultimately he is Alex is guiding light in this book and Alex is more or less just kind of learning from the conscience as he goes
1: well, at 20 years young, you are quite a philosopher already. You have uh, yeah. quite a uh, interesting thought pattern, and it sounds like some uh, some good values that you're trying to build upon.
3: Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, <laughs> I uh, I didn't really start writing it thinking I was going to put too much philosophy in it, but it just kind of happened naturally, I guess, because a lot of the ideas in the book really took on a philosophical concept and so i kind of had to tackle that in order to get my full point across and yeah
1: well you make this admission becca was Mm -hmm. or is a real girl who broke your heart
3: yeah um i will be honest at the very beginning this book actually started as a short story that i wrote for high school and um the whole point of why I wrote it was because I just wanted to kind of get my feelings out there and I thought if I did that I'd get over her and the short story got me 100 but I didn't um quite get over her so I was like well what other emotions am I feeling because I just figured if I get them all out there I will get over her and so in writing the book I can actually say that I am over her now and the book helped me do that and it also helped me write a pretty good story so uh this book did a lot of good things for me, I guess.
1: So it kind of expanded uh, from the loss of Becca, Alex. Love was all he ever wanted, and as you put it, he just never thought he'd find the elusive one. Now, who's the elusive one?
4: Um,
3: That's kind of a concept that's tackled in the book. Um, it's more of an idea than a specific person, and I don't really want to give too much away, sure. but... um. It's just basically the idea that for those who believe that there is one true love out there, the book kind of addresses, well, if there is, then what who would she be um how would you find her, and in a rational world, can there actually be just one person that you love or that you're meant to be with so
0: Well, he meets
1: her and then he loses her,
3: yeah. He does. Um,
1: I the guess of the that's book, why he's remembering her.
3: Yeah, I mean, the beginning of the book is um, a younger experience with her, and it's really the only time she's fully present in the book because on the rest of the book is really about him without her but still dealing with his feelings for her. And so I think that's really interesting because a lot of the time with love stories, the girl and the guy are both constantly present in the story, but here you just really see the guy and how he's reacting to all these emotions and the girl while she's there and his mind isn't physically there and it creates kind of this odd dynamic where it's almost hard to understand why he's still caught up on her but from the beginning of the story when she's present that's supposed to be the background and kind of give you a feeling as to why he just can't quite get this particular girl off of his mind.
1: So Alex is trying to formulate his own theory as to how people are meant to find the love of their life, and how does family and friends help him do that?
3: Um, well, it's kind of just taking the whole, there's other people in your life, they influence you, they're the people who, they're there for you when times get tough, they're the people that um kind of teach you the things that you might be too stubborn to learn on your own or see on your own, and so really without other perspectives besides his own i don't think any person could really grow in the way they're supposed to so while this book is very intimate and really based in alex's mind there had to be other people influencing him otherwise it just it wouldn't be natural and the book really wouldn't have a lot of validity in my mind
1: so the book, aggressively as you state, attacks the questions of what it means to be human and the importance of love in that life.
3: Um. Yeah. I mean, you. There's this whole. I guess goal while you're living. It's kind of to get to that place you want to be. To get to that ultimate goal. And a lot, a lot of people, and especially when you're young, you don't know what that is. You don't know where you're going. But for some reason. And I don't know if it's because of all these fairy tales or whatever we read when we're younger, but there's always this idea that love is one of those ultimate things that you want to get to. And so if it truly is, and you see tons of people getting married, and I know that the marriage rate is dropping in the U.S., but this, I mean, most people my age love that idea they want to get married. And so you would think that in some respect, finding love would have to be tied to finding happiness in life because... It's just such a respected thing and such a widely um, desired uh, aspect of life that people want. And so if you want to have a successful life, it just seems like you need to have love. And um, this book just tries to show you, you know, why that might be. Did you write this book to get Becca back? (laughs) Um, I think that's something a lot of people are going to ask me. Not too many have asked me yet. I think they might be too scared. Um, But I can honestly say, no, I did not. I actually did it for the exact opposite. I wrote it to get over her. And I think a lot of people, they meet a person that really hurts them and breaks them. And it's tough to get over them. And I don't think there's really a set formula as to how to do it. But I can say this book definitely did the trick for me because... I was able to create all these thoughts and all these scenarios in which aren't real, but because I created them, they felt real to me. And so in doing that, I could see all these potential moments I had with her and it just like made everything easier. And it was like, I'm never gonna have this. I don't really want it. And now I'm at this place where I've written this book, I've expressed how I feel and it's just, I don't know. I'm I'm over it and it feels really good. I'm not gonna lie. (laughs)
1: Well, you say that your writing is dedicated to answering the four vague questions that have forever plagued the human (laughs) existence. (laughs) First one, this what this book is about. What is love?
3: Yeah, um, the, the love question for me, really, I wanted to find an answer, and as I was writing I was hoping I might get to one, but ultimately it became very apparent that love really is what you make out of it as a person. I mean, Cause for some people they're determined to think, yes, there is only one person out there for me. But then there's people who think, you know, there's a lot of people who could potentially make me very happy for the rest of my life. And so it's really just coming to terms with what is going to make you happy. And once you do that, you can find love, you can let it into your life and you can be happy.
1: Well, we must be on the verge of some more books because the other three questions, what is life? What is God? And what is art? Yeah, um, that should, all those should stretch your mind into uh, <laughs> some interesting plots and characters.
3: Yeah, um, I mean I'm excited to tackle some big questions. I guess I mean they're I mean they're just the big questions that have been around my life a lot. I'm sure they've been around other people's life. I mean religion's always been a large influence on the human race, and I mean I find art fascinating, and uh, it just and then just those basic questions of like really what we're doing as humans like why we're alive all those things they just really interest me and as the they're really I want them to be the big ideas for my book because they're questions that a lot of people wonder about so
1: and okay. you're hoping to have a writing style that they would like uh, they may not be turned on by Mark Twain or you know <laughs> William Shakespeare but maybe they'll be turned on by
3: Alex yeah um the the main goal of my writing wasn't to replicate anybody. It was merely to write a book that is for my time, in the vocabulary of my time, addresses concepts and people and places of the time I'm living in, because I, it's just kind of disheartening. A lot of people talk about how we don't really have as great of writing as they used to. And so, and it's not an effort I can accomplish on my own, but... I just want it, I guess, to be known that I think that our generation has a lot of talent, and instead of trying to duplicate what others have done, if we can just kind of start to create our own style, our own new way of writing, then this generation can create possibly even greater works of writing than, you know, the times of Twain and Shakespeare and all that.
1: And you have learned already that life isn't selfish. You must give to others.
3: Yeah, um... (laughs) I mean, my uh, my big dream is that, and I, I definitely did not write this book to make money, but I do have, like, that dream of, you know, getting some profit and being able to really give back to the community, to uh, the people who who need help, because, um, I mean, ultimately, while I want to write books, I also want to do more hands-on things. I really want to help people with my life, and that's a pursuit that I need obviously some financial backing for and uh... so uh... hopefully i'll get the chance to do some pretty exciting stuff
1: and you recognize that today there is a lot of chaos but you're trying to inspire people no matter their circumstances
3: yeah i mean people they're i mean i've worked with uh... kids who really are in hard conditions it's hard for them to finish high school and uh... I've worked with kids trying to, you know, convince them just to apply to college and all sorts of uh you know, I've worked with like younger kids, older kids and it's just really I feel it's just so important to make sure that people recognize that they have a chance, they have an opportunity to do something great and I almost feel bad that I'm so privileged sometimes because it's so easy for me and it's so much harder for them. Um and it's just making the privileged people recognize that It's not just about your selfish gains. You have to go out there, you have to see the people that need you, and you have to go out there and help them, even if it takes some time away from making a little bit more money that you could have had.
1: And you want to really present love as a noble concept, and you see Hollywood in conflict with that.
3: Um, Well, it's just that Hollywood makes it seem so perfect. It makes love out to be almost you're going to get it. And it's that it's going to be the remedy for every problem in your life. And it's not. It's just it's one aspect of life that if you can find, if you can hold on to, I mean, it's going to help you a lot and it's going to teach you a lot of things. But it's not the be all, end all, the cure all for all of your problems. And I think that's something that Hollywood doesn't express a whole lot um, in in a lot of their love stories. so
1: Well, you understand that if you're going to make something out of your life, you just can't sit around. You got to get up and do amazing things. Yeah. So, uh, I'm trying to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you certainly are, Alex. At a young age of 20, it's, uh, just we congratulate you on publishing your book. The title, Remembering Becca. Love is just a memory. Author is Alexander Rosenfeld. Alex, tell us how to get your book.
3: Um, the best way to get my book would be authorhouse.com or on Amazon. Um, I'm supposed to have a website up soon, so be on the lookout for that. That'll be another easy way to get it. So,
1: well, thank you for being with us on Author Talk.
3: Thanks for having me.